Coastal at the Boatyard Restaurant, located at 1515 Southeast 17th Street Causeway in Fort Lauderdale. Here, you'll feel part of the yachting tradition of South Florida as you experience the Boatyard's hooked table, seafood-eccentric menu, with fresh catches listed by name of the fisherman who caught them. The Boatyard's open kitchen is also known for premium grilled cuts of meat and a menu that's sourced from local ingredients. Sit inside in modern nautical-themed rooms or dockside and watch the boats cruise by as you enjoy lunch, dinner, and Sunday brunch. Monday through Friday, the locals know that the Boatyard's happy hour is the best place to gather for bar bites and handcrafted cocktails at great prices. And don't miss out on Ladies' Night every Thursday. Call ahead to book your reservation today at 954-525-7400. Clear the airways. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is The Real Guy Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to The Real Guy Podcast. This is Captain Jeff, a.k.a. The Lunker Dog. I've been listening to... Um, I've been trying to listen to pretty much every single podcast on Waypoint Outdoors. See, the waypointoutdoors.com has a podcast... They call it the Captain's Collective of Podcasts, which I've been on for a while now. And um, I think it's a uh, really cool crowd. I think the uh, the people that are doing podcasts on there are really into the outdoors. And people are getting the information that they want. And I hope people are getting entertained on the Real Guy Podcast. Um, we try to keep it on the lighter side. It'd be a good idea to do a series of podcasts on the different mentors that I've had through my fishing career, and um, I think you guys will find it interesting. You know, when people first talk about their mentors, usually, you know, it's like, well, I grew up fishing with my dad, and he taught me this, and or an uncle or a grandfather, which I had that. I had that. But I had a unique experience with my dad because my dad didn't know anything about fishing, when we started fishing. So some of the guys that were my dad's mentors naturally became my mentor. And I can remember the guy that was the first real guy that I knew my dad knew. His name was Sam Cardinelli. This was like 1975, Gloucester, Massachusetts, Cape Ann Marina. Yep, the same Cape Ann Marina that you see on the Wicked Tuna show today. But Sam Cardinelli had a boat called the Samana, and he fished with his family there. And um, Sam had a beautiful boat. I mean, it was personally my favorite in the fleet or in the marina there at Cape Ann. He had a 47-foot Andy Mortensen. And he kept it beautiful. Had the mahogany cockpit and the teak. It was always kept beautiful. And Sam and my dad became friends on the docks at Cape Ann Marina. See, when my dad got into boating, he wasn't into fishing. Him and my mother, him and my mother got into boating because they were into scuba diving. And they were scuba diving off the shores in New England, finding places to go. And my dad then went out and got a boat so they could enjoy scuba diving. 
and they were really into harvesting um, the main lobsters up there. You know, it's not exactly what you would call the most beautiful scenery, you know, when you're diving up in the New England area. But there's a lot of good stuff on the bottom. And they collected the main lobster. Um, and man, I can remember them coming back from their dive trips with just buckets full of lobster. And then what would happen is they'd have so much lobster in the boat, you know, we could never eat it all. So we shared it with the people at the marina. And we became friends, you know, and you give people lobsters, they love you. And Sam Cotternelli on the Sam Anna was one of those guys. And my dad brought him a big old bucket of lobsters and gave it to him and his family, and they had a party on the dock. And Sam and my dad became friends. Sam, who was one of the better tuna fishermen um, at Cape Ann at the time, um, was pretty impressive. I mean, his boat was impressive, his family was impressive, his catches were impressive. But also the friends that he hung out with were impressive. Um, there was another boat down there called the Cookie, who the Murray brothers owned. Um, the guys had the Murray brothers fighting chairs and all that. And they were part of that original fleet. There was another guy named Bob Lewis that had a boat called the Lush Life. And um, I don't know, back in the, in, the, in the 70s, I guess, and I'm going off my memory, and I was pretty young at the time, but there was about 15 or 18 boats that really fished out of Cape Ann Marina for tuna fish. And back then, tuna fish weren't worth hardly anything. As a matter of fact, the only time... The commercial fishermen never even bothered um, catching tuna. Um, was when they absolutely had to, when some of the other species in the market got so bad that they would actually catch tuna. And for the longest time, I mean, seriously, we're getting like 25 cents a pound for this fish in the old days. A lot of times when the price got so cheap that the sport fishermen, who were the, pretty much the only ones that fished for them at the time, um, you know, you'd whoop the fish and then you'd just cut the line and let them go because it wasn't worth killing. You'd spend more fuel bringing them back to the dock to sell it than you would actually, <laughs> you know, do by letting it go. And back then, you know, killing stuff was normal. People killed all sorts of stuff. So letting a fish go back then was more of a convenience because they couldn't get anything for them. But anyway, Sam who was a phenomenal tuna fisherman. He takes my dad out fishing for the first time. And Sam's wife hooks onto a monster. And I could be wrong on exactly how big it was. It was about 1,100-pound bluefin tuna. And they bring it to the dock, and they string it up, and it's the biggest fish that I've ever seen. And I'm watching the crew, and everybody's all excited. And... Um, it turned out to be a woman's world record for bluefin tuna that day. And from that day on, whatever Sam did, my dad did. Sam broke out the gear. My dad went out and bought the gear. He got the big senators at the time, and they used Dacron. Dacron line. I think it was 130-pound Dacron is what we used for line on those big senators. There wasn't monofilament. really wasn't a... Um, 
an option. I, I, I can't remember monofilament being much bigger than like 50-pound test back then. So Dacron was really common. And the way the Dacron came was uh, it was white with little green stripes in it. And when you deployed it in the water, you could see it, you know. It was fairly visible. And Sam would take his Dacron and he would paint it black. So my dad would come home and he breaks out the rods and reels and get the Dacron out and we take 150 feet at a time and we get the black dye out and we're painting the, the, the line black. And then the swivels back then, we used these big swivels and the swivels were made out of like a, I don't know, but they were silver, with like a chrome finish, very bright. And we took those and we spray painted them black. And then in the old days, we didn't use monofilament leaders. We used cable leaders. A lot of time it was airplane cable, different gauges, but cable leaders we would use. And then we would crimp the cable leader to the hook, which were giant J-hooks at the time. I can actually remember the Japanese um, teaching us way back then in the 70s about circle hooks and how they used them for tuna fish. But the average setup was these huge freaking 11 -0. They look like shark hooks. And then everybody dead baited for tuna for the most part back then. Your normal procedure would you get up early in the morning and either a trawler, which was a boat that um, would troll these big nets behind them, would have these crates of whiting or herring, cod, pollock, whatever they had you would buy a crate of this stuff at a time and you use it as chum. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. So Sam taught my dad where to get the bait, okay, and which trawlers had the bait of choice, and then how to rig the baits. So then my dad would come home, and we'd rig the tuna baits. They wanted it where the whole hook was inside the mackerel, so you couldn't see it. 
where the steel cable went down into the tail. The hook came out towards the head, but it was all embedded because they didn't want the tuna to see it. These are the little things that I learned as a real youngster, as my dad learned them, sharing this mentorship that Sam Cardinelli was giving us. And I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I couldn't wait for the next thing. And the next thing was a flying gaff. Sam had this huge flying gaff on the Samana. And my dad went out and he bought the flying gaff. Now, buying the flying gaff was just part of it. Learning how to use a flying gaff in those days wasn't as simple as it probably should have been. Gear back then was, was rigged for fishing. I don't think the gear back then was actually made for fishing. Fishermen actually rigged it for fishing. And then guys like the Murray brothers would take those ideas and bring them to market so they could sell them. But in their 70s, I mean, sport fishing wasn't exactly, you know, you, we'll put it this way. You were buying most of your tackle from hardware stores. So it's a totally different scene. And up in Gloucester, Massachusetts, although they had a big commercial fishery and they could do a lot of traps and trawling and this huge commercial industry, as far as sport fishing went, it wasn't exactly what you would call a mecca for sport fishing like it is here in South Florida. So totally different times, totally different ways, totally different way of getting mentored by Sam Cardinelli on the Samana. So anyway, then Sam started teaching us the spots. You know, he brought us out, and the uh, first place we fished was in the Gulf of Maine on the north side of Massachusetts. Then he took us on the south side, and we fished Stalwagon Bank. Then he showed us where Jeffrey's Bank was. Then we went all the way out to George's Bank one time. Now, back then, going out to George's Bank was a big deal. Because these boats weren't efficient like they are now. And they didn't hold the type of fuel like they do now. So fuel was a big deal going out to George's Bank. And Sam taught us all this different stuff. And as we would learn the locations and where the fish would stack up and where they would move to with my dad's boat, which was a 33-foot um, sport fishing boat called a Concord, like a Chris Craft style. But anyway, it was a convertible. And it wasn't quite as big as Sam's boat, so we didn't go to Jeffrey's and to George's very often. We often stayed on Stalwagon. Or we could fish right out in front of Gloucester at the time, just a few miles away, and there was plenty of fish to be caught. But we learned the areas. And that was the first time in my life, first time in my dad's life, that we actually knew or learned the strategy of location and spots. Totally new to us at the time. I mean, you know, as a kid, I just figured you'd go out to the ocean. If you were in the ocean, you were in the spot. But now Sam showed us on the charts. And back then, charts were on the, on the table in the salon of the Samana, where he'd lay out the charts and he'd show it to us. And then we would go and mimic and do some charting to make sure we knew exactly where we were. Fighting techniques. All learned from Sam Cardinelli. How to maneuver the boat. All learned from Sam Cardinelli. Sam was a great captain, and when 
There was a hookup on his boat. His family knew exactly what to do. They were like a well-oiled machine. And Sam would drive, and he was a phenomenal driver. And his family all had responsibilities from the time the fish got on to the time they put the tail rope on the fish to the time they bought the fish back into market. Everybody had responsibilities. And the Cardinelli's were a fine old machine, and it's the first time that I ever saw that in sport fishing. And it made me realize that big game sport fishing was a team sport. You know, in the modern age, in today's world, you know, um, sail fishing, huge team sport. Peter Miller, um, good friend of mine, one of the best in the sailfish world, world champ, I think like three times or something like that. But his team, him and Kit, and the team that he would build around the Gitlet crew and sail fishing was the key to success. It's about team. And Sam Cardinelli taught us that. Later on in my career, and I started fishing Blue Marlin with the Venezuelans and started doing lots of tournaments, you know, I could tell who was going to do well in the tournaments, not because who had the best fishermen, but who had the best teams of fishermen. Who fished with who the longest, the most often in a certain way, in a certain area. And then you would develop your team. The Cardinelli's on the Samana was the first team and probably one of the well, most polished team that I've ever been associated with. Well, then my dad changed marinas. And we went across the uh, Boston Harbor to the south side. And my dad found this little marina in a uh, town called Hummerock, Hummerock, Massachusetts. And my dad's best friend had a house in Hummerock, Massachusetts, so we got the marina down there. And then we brought what we learned from Cape Ann Marina to Hummerock. And there wasn't hardly any other boats in Hummerock tuna fishing like there was in Cape Ann. And that was the first time I realized that being around other people with the common goal means a lot. Because it's hard to be isolated and know or not know what everybody else knows. And we learned that when we changed uh, marinas. We went from Cape Ann Marina in Gloucester to Hummerock Marina in Hummerock. And that was the first bluefin season that we did by ourselves and it was grueling season we hooked plenty of fish but we lost every tuna we hooked in the first season of fishing and let's just say that me and my dad we had a long way to go but we picked ourselves back up dusted ourselves off, started all over again. And in the second season of tuna fishing, we changed a few things and made a few less mistakes. And we, we caught 11 bluefin tunas 
Now, I'm not sure how many Sam caught that year or how many the cookie caught that year because we weren't in the same marina. But what I did know is when we were out there in the fleet, as we were competing, and we were catching fish, and it was the first time in my life that I ever felt the fever or felt how cool it was to be performing high in a sport fish element like tuna fishing. I mean, make no bones about it. There's an ego involved. And that was the first time I ever felt it at a pretty young age. Anyway, like I said, you know, we've had a lot of, a lot of mentors over the years. And you can always tell, you know, who was really a mentor because as life goes on and, you know, time goes by, you think about that person and you tell stories about that person. And they end up in, like, a podcast of yours, you know, 35 years later. But anyway, I hope you uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the first of the mentor series on the Lunker Dogs Real Guy Show. This is uh, a real guy podcast for real guys by real guys, and um, let me know what you think about the new series, the mentor series, the most commonly asked question in most outdoor podcasts. Well, this was the first. This was Sam Cardinelli. Always be grateful for Sam and his family. Run that dog and stay tuned.